Good morning. Um, again, my name is Ted Vandenberg, and uh, it's my pleasure and my honor, and I'm very grateful for having the opportunity to bring a message from God's Word today as we uh, wrap up um, the third of the series of God the Father, God um, the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Today, of course, is God the Holy Spirit. And so without further ado, if you'd join me in prayer. Our great Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, the Blessed Son, and the Eternal Spirit, we come to you. We come to you, the God in three persons, one in essence, perfect in every way, the only true God. We are filled with gratitude. Gratitude for our redemption, the, the very redemption that you, our Heavenly Father, has finished for us in Christ the Son, and then applied that application to us by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, undeserving as we are, and you who have welcomed us into your kingdom, your everlasting kingdom, so that we might be partakers of your unspeakable glory. We just ask, Lord, that the Spirit, your Holy Spirit, will illuminate the Scriptures, open our hearts and minds today to your word, for your kingdom, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me say um, right from the very first, on the outset, that we as a church must confess that the Holy Spirit is very God of very God. The attributes that belong to God alone, and alone to God, belong to the Holy Spirit. And so we confess the full deity of the Holy Spirit. And we understand, or what we understand, and what we think about the Holy Spirit has an enormous impact on how we relate with Him, how we interact with Him. So it's important that we have that really deep appreciation for who the person of the Holy Spirit is. If you see the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force, that is a power, a power that you can tap into, or a source of influence, then your thought could be, how can I use the Holy Spirit? That is, how can I use the Holy Spirit to get things, to improve my life, to enrich myself? And that would be akin to a worshiper of a pagan religion that uses his god, little g, or his idol, in an attempt to do his own will. And we don't ask, how can I use the Holy Spirit? No, we ask, how can the Holy Spirit use me? When we see the Holy Spirit as a divine person, that is, with a name, who has a personality, a personality of knowledge, a personality of will, uh, has feelings towards us, that has left, in some sense, his majesty to condescend, to dwell within our hearts, to dwell within my heart, and take possession of my life. Well, this view of the Holy Spirit makes us ask, Lord, use me. The difference between a man using God to do his bidding in this world and God, the Spirit, entering into me, into you, into a man to use that person to do his work in the world. So, join me, and we'll look at a few scriptures here to see the deity of God the Holy Spirit. We start with Genesis. Genesis 1. Chapter 1, verses two, 1 and 2, the creation, we see the Holy Spirit is actively participating in the creation. It reads, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then we see his, well, that his omnipresence in Psalms 139, 7 through 10, David's psalm says this, Where can I go? <laughs> where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, 
Behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me. And your right hand will lay hold of me. We see that he is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. In 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11, it says, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. And lastly, we see that he's omnipotent, all-powerful. In Luke chapter 1, 35, we read, The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. We are shown the Holy Spirit's deity in these scriptures. God, the Holy Spirit. And we're not teaching on the Trinity today. However, let me just take a moment to make some points that God is one. The scriptures tells us there is one God and only one God. We look at Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 30. And we read that one of the scribes came and hearing them argue, arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, he asked him, What commandment is foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is this. Hear, O Israel, for the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. <laughs> you know, our Judeo-Christian faith is committed to the unity of God. And yet the fullness of the biblical revelation of God makes important distinctions. Distinctions within God. So a simple overview, we see God in some sense as one, and in another sense God as three persons. And we don't mean that we believe there are three gods. No, nor do we believe there are three parts to God. That is, part A, part B, and part C, and somehow we combine them and, and bind them or glue them together so they're one God. Mm -mm. Wayne Grudem, noted theologian in his book, The Systematic Theology, gives this definition of the Trinity. God eternally exists as three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. Another way of saying this is that God is one in essence and three in person. It's important to see we make distinctions in the roles, such as, well, let's talk about God the Father. We, we talk about God the Father being the creator, Christ as being the redeemer, and the Holy Spirit as being the, you fill in the blank, sanctifier. But these characteristics are not essential. And what that means is that they do not stand alone in their work, for instance, as if they were three different gods. No, but in fact, the Scriptures report that all three persons of Trinity are deeply and profoundly involved in creation deeply and profoundly involved in redemption and in our very sanctification. So, all that to say that yes, God is three persons, and yes, God is one. There's one theologian that I read recently who, um, who, who talked about why this is difficult to talk about. Uh, he described the problem of trying to explain that one, that God is three persons, and two, each person is fully God, and three, there is one God. And this is what he said. I'm going to quote him. The primary trouble with all attempted explanations is that people are trying to use the created 
to explain the Creator. And it simply cannot be done. The second problem is that we, a portion of creation, the created, wants to understand. We want to comprehend God. We want to figure Him out, if you will. And in our attempt to apprehend Him, to understand Him, we strive to contain God within what we understand in the created universe. All the while, the Bible reassures us it is not ours to understand fully yet, unquote. 1 Corinthians 13.12 helps clear this up for us a little bit. As it says, now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face, now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. So we have it, and we see it, that the Holy Spirit has a name as a person, and the Holy Spirit is called God. He is named as God. He is named as a person. He's given the attributes that only God has. But just to make this point clear, let's look at some scripture here that brings this into sharp focus. Do you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament? Everybody at that time, after the resurrection and after Pentecost, the first century church in Jerusalem coming together, taking care of one another, everybody was giving property to be held in, in, in common, selling some of their possessions for the common good. Ananias and Sapphira, they sold property as well. And some theologians would say that there was special honor be given to those people who were making sacrifices for the, for the common good of the church. Maybe they wanted to be a part of that. They wanted to be seen in a position of honor. Well, they sold their property, but they held back part of their proceeds. And in that, they lied. They lied about holding on to a portion of their earnings. And this is what we read in Acts 5, 3 through 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Here, lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God. The Holy Spirit is ascribed with the attributes of God, is equal with God, does the work that only God does. Quick review of other scriptures. The Holy Spirit is worshipped in Hebrews. The Holy Spirit is eternal in John the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He's boundless in Psalms. The Holy Spirit is omnipotent. He is all-powerful in Job. The Holy Spirit is omniscient, all-knowing, all-seeing in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. So we, we as a church, believe the Holy Spirit is co-equal with God. God the Father, God the Son, and is the same essence. But he is also distinct from them in his person and his work. So let's consider some of those um, distinctions. Look at the special attributes of the Holy Spirit. Because when he comes into my life, when he comes into you, when he, at our conversion, at our salvation, he does a work. And here's just a short list of that work. But I want you to think about what God, the Holy Spirit, is doing in me, what he's doing in you. Because his work is to convict us of sin. He permanently indwells us. He seals us. What a beautiful thing. He seals us. That's a guarantee of our salvation, a guarantee of our redemption. He teaches us. He guides us into all truth. He reminds us of his very word. 
this is beautiful, he bears fruit through us. A fruit of righteousness. He comforts us. He equips us with spiritual gifts. He fills us, and he is the power that empowers us. The Holy Spirit plays a major role in the application of salvation to both myself and to you, to individuals. It is the Spirit who brings conviction to the unbeliever, causes them to see the truth of the gospel, causes them to see the gospel as clear as day. Those who respond to this conviction and place their faith in Jesus Christ receive eternal life and a new nature. The Holy Spirit unites the believer with Christ. He places us with Christ in the body of Christ. That's the church. This is the local church, but he also puts us into the universal church. That is my brother and sister in Christ in China or in South America, or you name the place. That's the universal church where we belong to his body. He unites the believer with Christ in his death. We die with Christ, and we we are risen in victory, and victory over sin. And this is a big component of the work of the Spirit in our lives. Victory over sin. The Holy Spirit controls the believer. He's working in my life so I can yield to God, to submit myself to God and to his word. These When these conditions are met, the believer lives in the power of the Spirit and produces the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells me, the believer, permanently. The Spirit indwells you. While the child of God, that's me and you, we may sin. We will sin. And we may grieve the Holy Spirit. But I want you to know that Even though we fail him, he never fails us. He'll never leave us. He'll never deny us. We have confidence he will never forsake us. He's in us permanently. And though we fail him, he doesn't fail us. He will never leave one who has put his trust in him. Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson He says that all of Scripture speaks of the Holy Spirit in his work of redemption throughout history. He goes back to the very beginning. He says that in the very beginning, God the Spirit was hovering over the original created mass. He creates this analogy that I want to build on. Because he says in the beginning it was formless, it was empty, it was a type of chaos. The Spirit was working to bring form and fullness to formlessness, to emptiness. The Spirit performs that same activity in our salvation. He brings form and shape, reconciliation. He brings harmony and peace with God out of formless, empty, chaotic lives, dead in sin. God in his essence, which is to say in his oneness, is beautiful. The relationship within God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is ultimate harmony, the ultimate symmetry, the ultimate perfect relationship. Hmm. Moving on this analogy, every time we see order and harmony, coherence, peace, tranquility, reconciliation, it bears witness to the character of God. In other words, where there is order and harmony, there is the Spirit of God. This is the work of the Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit in us, in me, within all who believe. I'd like to give you an illustration from the fire service. One that I draw from personal experience. And looking at order and harmony, looking at chaos... It's very clear to me that I can see how this fits because some time ago I was responding to a structure fire, a three-story apartment complex. It was on a weekend, and that complex 
was filled with people, home for the weekend. The fire started on the second floor. Now, this building had what we call interior corridors, hallways. Well, that's the only way out of your unit. It's down a hallway. And these hallways didn't, weren't sprinkled. They didn't have a sprinkler system in them. Well, why this is important because it makes escape nearly impossible if the unit on fire leaves their door open when they're escaping their fire. Because the hallway then gets involved in the fire. It's filled with smoke and heat and flame. The only means of escape for those living on that same hallway is cut off. This was the case that day. The room of origin was fully involved in fire. And what that means is from floor to ceiling, wall to wall, it was completely on fire. It had flashed over. Mm. Well, the fire, the heat, the smoke had spread into the hallway. It's prevented people from exiting the building. The fire had grown so quickly that when it impinged against the glass sliding door, it broke the door, went out onto the balcony, engulfed the third-story balcony, was going into the roof uh, components, had broken the third-story sliding glass door, and had made its way back into the building. When we arrived, there was chaos. There was smoke and fire. I can see it, and I could see the confusion. I could see the disorder. You could say there was anarchy. It was an ugly scene. It was bordering on madness. Because as we were trying to get into the fire with our equipment, people were trying to get out. Many of them were jumping in their cars and moving them away from the building that was on fire because they were worried that they were going to lose their vehicles. That blocked our access. People running from the building, and guess what? Yep, people running in to the area to see the chaos. On scene, on scene, I was met with the sight of people jumping from their balconies for their lives. I remember seeing this one woman on the second floor balcony handing her child over the balcony railing down to strangers who are reaching up for her child. There was a man, as I'm taking this in, who knocks on my window of my command vehicle. I look over, I see him. He's holding his arm bleeding. Turns out he broke a window to escape the flames. There was fear, there was panic, there was dread. You know, really for all those involved, it was a nightmare. But when the fire department arrives, the firefighters are there. They're there to organize this emergency scene, to bring order to bring resolution, to bring the chaos under control. They mitigate disorder. Stop the loss. Relieve the pain. Stop suffering. (laughs) You could even say they bring hope. So God, the Holy Spirit, I see this as a good analogy for me, from my experience. God, the Holy Spirit, brings harmony to chaos, confusion, formlessness. He brings light and beauty to our lives. He stops the fear, the confusion and chaos of a dead life, a dead life in sin, and makes me, makes you, makes us whole and at peace with God. Again, Sinclair Ferguson has said that at the beginning from creation, That when God creates, at first the world is without form. It's formless, it's void, it's empty, it's dark. There's no color, no light, it's silent, it's ugly, if you will, until the Spirit broods upon the water. When the Spirit comes into creation, the Spirit is not the author of confusion, but rather of order. He brings things into order. The Spirit of God is working to bring resolution. God moves on the waters, and where there is darkness, the lights come on. The universe begins to be formed. The universe is filled with the Spirit of God. And that it no longer is formless. It's no longer empty. It's no longer dark. It's beautiful. And we see that work in our own lives. He turns the lights on. I have to ask you a question. Do you think God the Spirit stopped that work of resolution on creation day? 
No. The Spirit continues to work, continues to work in my life, in your soul, to bring harmony to our being, to bring peace with God, to bring light into my life, to bring order and integrity into your life, to make your life whole. Your life ultimately has the shames and the stains of chaos and ugliness removed. Your sin is removed. The work of the Holy Spirit is wonderful and beautiful, and because of his work in you, we say that we are his craftsmanship. And the one who is doing that work that workmanship in my life and in your life, right this very moment, is God the Holy Spirit. Amen. I just recently heard a pastor put it this way, and it stuck in my mind immediately. He said this. He said, We have been saved from our sin. That is at the point of our conversion, right? We were saved from our sin. That's in the past, if you're a believer. But we are currently being saved from the practice of our sin. That's the work of the Holy Spirit or sanctification. That's in the present. But he said, one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. That is going to be at our glorification. That is in the future. So let's talk more about sanctification, that primary work of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit in our lives. We'll start with a definition. Again, we go back to Wayne Grudem when he says this about sanctification. He says, quote, it is a progressive work that continues throughout our earthly lives. It is also a work in which God and man cooperate, each playing distinct roles. This part of the application of redemption is called sanctification. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man and makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. So the word progression is interesting. What does that mean? Well, basically what it means is this. When we come to Christ, when we believe, and we are justified by faith. That's our conversion. That's point A. And then I said, at our glorification, right? At the resurrection, when we take off this corruptible and we put on the incorruptible in the future. Well, between that time, we're on earth here. And that time from point A to point B is a time we call sanctification or a progressive line. And it goes like this. It doesn't just go in a straight line. This line may go sharply up, and then it may level off the curve, if you will. And then may slowly go up, and we actually may have a downturn. And may have another sharp turn up. But what I'm trying to say is it's not a perfect line. Why? Because I'm a sinner. I'm a new creature, but I drag that old man with me still to this day, and until I take that old, corruptible man off and put on the incorruptible, I'm still a sinner. But God? God has called me to be holy. He's called you to be holy. Let's look at a couple of these verses here. In Leviticus 19.2, he says, Speak to all the congregation, to the sons of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. That word shall is very strong. That's a command. Maybe you know in your work, when you, when you get that word, you shall, <laughs> like my work, you shall, you know it's a command. You will do it. Romans 8.29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Or let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, 
by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ, to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. Amen. Or Romans 8.13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 1 Corinthians 6, 18-19. Flee immorality. Every other sin a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man? The immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know? Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? And lastly, the work of the Spirit that's manifest. So people all around can see that he's working in you, and you're working towards holiness. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control against such things, there is no law. God has called us to be holy. If your experience is like mine, I know I can't do that in my own flesh. I need, I need the Holy Spirit to work in me. So why? Why is the Holy Spirit called holy? Holiness is an attribute of God. The Holy Spirit is no more or no less holy than God the Father or God the Son. So why? Why don't we speak of the Holy Father, the Holy Son, and the Holy Spirit? Why is the Holy Spirit alone among the Trinity given this title? Well, I don't have the answer. But R.C. Sproul, he gives an interesting answer. I'm not sure he does either, but I think it's interesting nonetheless. He says, quote, We don't receive a direct answer to that question. But I think it is one that's easy to guess. And that is because the focal point of the work of the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit is sanctification. That he is the one who's working upon us, within us, toward bringing us to the goal of righteousness, of making us holy. We all know that we were made in the image of God, right? We were made to reflect his very nature. We've been called to be like him. You shall be holy, for the Lord your God, I am holy. It was at the fall. Adam and Eve. Sin brought shame, stain, if you will, marred the very image of God that we are to reflect. We can say the fall brought chaos and confusion into the world. And so now the goal of redemption is that we might become holy. We might become conformed to the image of Christ himself. Be made more Christ-like. And we are to demonstrate, demonstrate that we are children of God, that we belong to him by our holiness. Which the scriptures say, without which no one will ever see the Lord. So how do we do this? Well, it is the Holy Spirit who is the author and the power of our sanctification. You know, have you ever asked this question? Have you ever asked the question, How do I know what the will of God is for my life? I've asked it, sometimes in despair. What does God want me to do with my life? I mean, what should be my focus? What should I emphasize in my life? Where should I go? What should I do? The New Testament encourages us because we see that it tells us what the will of God is for us. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says it very simply. For this is the will of God, 
your sanctification. <laughs> We've been called to it. You know, whether he wants me to marry or stay single, or he wants me to take this job or take that job, to live in this place or that place, if nothing else, we know he's going to be pleased by the pursuit of sanctification. It's his will. That's the will of God for my life. That's the will of God for your life. We know sanctification is the will of God for our lives, but what is it? And so I'm trying to explain this further. I'm going to use the teachings of R.C. Sproul's and in his words, because we're, we're asking, what is sanctification? We're, we're talking about sanctification, and it's difficult because we're talking about holiness to people who are not holy. <laughs> I'm speaking as one who is not holy. I'm a sinner speaking to sinners about holiness. And now that's trouble, right? Both in my speaking and in your hearing. But what's important for us to know is that when I sin, I basically have three problems. First, I incur, when I sin, I incur guilt. I'm not talking about guilty feelings. I'm talking about I am guilty before God for breaking his law. I am guilty. That's objective. Guilt feelings and guilt aren't the same thing. Guilt feelings are subjective. But guilt is objective. It's true. If I break the law of God, I incur guilt. Whether I feel it or I don't feel it, it doesn't matter. I'm still guilty. And so you have guilt as part of the reality of sin. We break his law, we sin, we're guilty. A second. Second of all, with that guilt, I am exposed to the reality of punishment. I have the expectation of punishment, the wrath of God. I'm under indictment because God is just and God, uh, God is justice or righteous and God punishes sin. Now, those are the two things that happen when a person sins. Sin not only brings guilt and the expectation of punishment or exposure to punishment, but sin also brings a stain. Something happens to my soul. Something happens to a person when they sin. When I sin, I am blemished. I've changed. I've become corrupted by my action of sin. Now, our justification, which we are reconciled to God through the cross. This is the gospel. Through the cross of Christ, which is the center of our faith, we realize in our justification our guilt, we're guilty of sin, our guilt is taken by Jesus, and our punishment is taken by Jesus. In the atonement and in God's decree of declaring us just, in Jesus Christ, those two elements of the problem are taken care of. The problem of sin, Christ took care of on the cross. In justification, my guilt is taken. My punishment is taken. I receive forgiveness from God, but I still remain stained. I'm not pure. I think we all intuitively know that. The reformer, Martin Luther, he said it this way, we are at the same time justified, yet sinner. When I become a Christian, when I become a Christian, I don't enter the kingdom of God based on my righteousness, based on my works, based on cleaning myself up to be accepted. Because the word tells me that while I am a sinner, Christ died for me. While we are sinners, Christ died for us. And the moment I believe in Jesus, his righteousness is given to my account. Praise God. God counts me righteous in Christ so that all that Christ is and all that he has become is mine the moment I trust him. Boom! Justification. Saved by grace through faith. 
That's what justification is all about. But at the same time, at the same time I'm pronounced just by God, the Holy Spirit indwells me. And that's when the change really starts to happen. That process by which internally I am changed, the stain is being removed, and I am becoming holy. I'm being conformed to the will of God. I'm becoming conformed to the image of Christ. And this is not instantaneous. This is a long and gradual process, and we call that process sanctification. My justification starts in an instant that I believe. But it is not completed in the instant that I believe. One of the greatest struggles that every Christian has, and you should be able to relate to this, is the fact that you, as a believer, me as a believer, we still sin. The experience that I have and the experience that you have is that we have warfare between that old person of the flesh and the new person in Christ. We, we carry, we drag this old person of the flesh with us. And that old flesh will be with us until our glorification, when we will take off the corruptible, put on the incorruptible, and be free from the presence of sin. Praise God. And sanctification is concerned right now about the fact that we are inwardly being renewed so that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit, when he regenerates, also indwells us. And in that indwelling, the work, the work that he's doing, quite frankly, is cleaning us up. I like the analogy that Martin Luther gives. Again, he, he says it this way. He says, it's like a person who's hovering between life and death in a critical condition, lying in his bed. The doctor is called, the doctor comes, and he has the medicine. It's a for sure cure. It's going to heal this person and save them from this certain death. He just needs to administer it. He administers the medicine, and though the person is still lying on the bed, still in critical condition, there's no doubt. There's no doubt that this medicine will do its work. And so, this person is pronounced cured. And everybody sits back, and they wait, they watch for the fullness of the healing to take place. We, we are people who are not yet well. We're still lying on that bed, but we're in the process of becoming whole again. Because the medicine, that medicine that went in us is the Holy Spirit. And he's working in us, for us, with us. The changes that take place in our lives as we grow into maturity and to conformity work from inside out. The changes of sanctification take place when we are changed from the inside. This is the beauty of God, the Holy Spirit. And the goals of these changes, believe it or not, are actually external. They change from the inside, but the goals are that God wants to see fruit, fruit of righteousness, an external view. The goal of the Christian life is not to be religious, that is rites and ceremonies and the like. It's not morality. It's not keeping the rules so you can be justified. So, in other words, performance, paying the rent. And it's not even spirituality. That is, connecting with something transcendent, bigger than us. No, the goal of righteousness, no, the goal is righteousness. We are being sanctified. So we will do what is right. And that is not just what is right in the view of others. No, it's external, but it's what's right in our minds and in our hearts. 
Behavior is very much the center concern of sanctification. But behavior is external, and behavior may manifest, may manifest what's happening in the heart and the mind. Or, as we all know, it could be a masquerade. You just think about the greatest enemies of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the hypocrites, he called them, the Pharisees, who had totally externalized righteousness. And they put on an outward display of this righteousness while inside they were concealing corruption. Such corruption, it was unspeakable. The Word of God tells us in Proverbs, as a man thinks within himself, so he is. As we in our hearts, as our hearts are good, in God the Holy Spirit, the good fruit, quite frankly, the good fruit comes from the good tree. And the Holy Spirit is working inside us to produce the fruit that will be seen on the outside, externally. So now there are three aspects to, by which the Spirit works to change us. Now these just aren't the only three, but they say these are the major aspects by which the Spirit changes us. And they are these. When we are converted, we experience an immediate manifestation of repentance. In our faith, we repent of our sin. And that means, that repentance, that very word means to change the direction we're going in, a change of mind, change of our hearts. Second, the Holy Spirit, the work of salvation, and the work of sanctification convicts us of our sin. But not just of our sin. He convicts us of what is right, what is righteous. The conviction of sin is what tells us when we've done something wrong. But he convicts us of what is righteous. In other words, his work is in conviction of what's right and wrong. Finally, we see the Spirit working in our consciences. Have you noticed something about these three? These three elements of the Spirit's work within us that change us, what happens by us and comes out of us? I want you to see how much of this is mental. It involves our minds. And here's the reason. The reason I want to point this out, it's about the Word of God in our sanctification. It's the Scriptures that give us right thinking. How can you possibly do what is right and pleasing to God if you don't have any idea what is right and pleasing to God? Listen, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 makes it very clear. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof for correction, for training in righteousness, so that a man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We... We are people who are ruled by our minds, our lives, by our understanding. God, the Holy Spirit, addresses my mind, addresses your mind to get the very core of us, to get to our hearts. This is what changes our lives. How much time do we spend in the Word? How much time do we dedicate to reading and understanding memorizing, living out the Word of God. Because the Word and the Spirit go together. If we're really serious about being changed, being sanctified, let's remember that the New Testament speaks of being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Jesus said, if you continue in my Word, then you are my disciples my learners. 
you shall know the truth. And the truth, well, the truth shall set you free. I'm going to close on, on this last part here. And that is just to make us think about the work of God that's being done in us for his glory. It is being done by the Holy Spirit so that in the consummation of his kingdom, when he brings everything together, not only will there be no more tears and no more death and no more night, there'll be no more chaos, no more disorder, no more shame. Your stains, your sin, as white as snow, as white as snow in the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth, you will be seen without blemish because you <laughs> you are the workmanship, the craftsmanship of God that's being done within you by God the Spirit. You join with me in prayer, please. Father, we thank you for the fullness of your grace. You loved us. You loved us so much you sent your only son to redeem us. Jesus, we're, we're grateful. We're grateful that you humbled yourself to be a servant. You're obedient to God the Father, to his will, even to die on the cross. You as the perfect atoning sacrifice that took away our sin forever. And Holy Spirit, you too have loved us everlastingly. And now you make your permanent home in our hearts, letting your life and power flow through us, producing abundant works of fruit. We're grateful, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Bless us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. This is the time when we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. It's okay that you uh, didn't dress up, but that's all right. Uh, I'm just, just glad you're here today. How much has the world changed since New Testament times? How much has the world changed in your own lifetime? How much has the world changed in the last four months? Let me ask another question, a better question. What hasn't changed? Here's even a, a better question than that. What won't change? I can think of two things that won't change. People were created in the image of God. They will continue to rebel against God. The Bible, of course, calls that sin. It doesn't say big sins and little sins. It says sin. All have sinned. That won't change. The good news, which won't change, is that the Lord Jesus Christ provided a cure for that sin. His cure, what he did, was and is and will always be the only way, the one and only way that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. 1 Corinthians 15, that's the resurrection chapter, beginning of it. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Communion recognized what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. Communion reminds us how much it cost him. Observing communion helps us to never, ever forget because some things don't change. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the classic uh, chapter, classic uh, portion, verse 11, verses 24 to 26, uh, with the Lord's Supper. 
written by Paul, of course, New Testament. And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread in pieces and said, this is my body, which is for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take it. I know that I haven't prayed yet. We're going to take it and then pray. And I'm not sure what I'm going to say, but as far as on this tape, I may pray a while. I hope you will be uh, in prayer as well. The bread symbolizes his body. We, of course, use this uh, little piece of unleavened bread. That's, in our mind, that's symbolic of his body, his precious body, his sinless body sacrificed for us. Let's take the bread. The juice, or the wine, in this case, juice. I don't do wine anymore. In this case, the juice represents the blood of Christ. It isn't just the fact that this man Jesus bled, but it's the sacrificial blood. John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God. That was a sacrificial lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the sacrifice. The juice represents that. Let's take the juice. Father in heaven, to say thank you is uh, just shows how limited our vocabulary is, Father. In this world, the world has always been a challenge. It's always been confusing. There's always been challenges and difficulties. But now in the last few months especially, we, we frequently say, what's going on here? Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the stability that you give us. We want to be good citizens at this time. We want to be strong believers at this time. We also want to be comforted. And this communion, this time, helps us. Because we do this to remember you. And in remembering you, we have a perspective. Because life isn't the way we want it to be, of course. And yet, what you've done is way beyond what we ever thought. And yet, when we found you, you satisfy and you give us peace and you give us comfort and you give us hope for the future. Thank you for communion, which reminds us of this and of, of so many things it reminds us of. Your holiness, our sin, your love. Thank you. In the Lord, name of the Lord, I thank you with all my heart. And uh, we just give you praise, Jesus. Amen. Holy Spirit.